0: in week two of a series entitled Broken People, Big God. Last week, I said it this way, that the only holy person God ever uses in the Bible is Jesus, that everybody else is broken, but they're used by a big God and they're used in powerful, eternal ways. And that's good news for us because everybody in this room, I don't know if you know this, is broken on some level. And yet God is so good and he's so big, isn't he? that he invites us to not only receive him and and, and to have a work done in us, but also a, a work done through us today, just like the people we looked at in the Bible. So last week we looked at a guy named Timothy, who I'm biased, but has a great name. And today we're looking at a lady named Ruth, who actually, that's a great name as well. My wife's middle name is Ruth. My youngest daughter's middle name is Ruth as well. So I'm just basically picking people in the Bible that resemble my family's names. No, I'm really not, right? There's, there's way more to it than that. We're gonna see that this morning. And I want you to grab a Bible. I don't want you to just hear my words. I want you to see God's words. Grab a Bible, head to the book of Ruth. If you don't know where it is, flip over seven books in your Old Testament. Ruth is the eighth book. It's sandwiched right between Judges and 1 Samuel. So find that uh, with me. Uh, grab your bulletin as well. We give you that, not just so you can recycle it later, But so that you can use it to take notes. You'll see my outline, be able to follow along. So, Bible bullets and two good things for you to have as we get going here in our time together. But I want to start it this way. I want to start it a little bit fun, and I'm going to need your participation. You guys ready for that? Okay, thank you. I'm gonna give you some famous one-liners from movies and I'm gonna give you a portion of the statement and I want you to finish the statement with me. So I'll point to you and help you out with this. Here's our first one. It's a a softball one. I'm gonna tell you off the top. Here it is though. May the force, thank you. Here's the second one. I'll be Bach, (laughs) Terminator. Good one. Show me the Money. money. Jerry Maguire fans in the room. You can't handle the truth. There you go. Last one. If you build it, they will come. Field of dreams. The funny story about that, I showed that to my 10-year-old son recently because I have this nostalgia about that movie like in baseball. And, I, and you know how those movies that you haven't seen in a long time that you think they're about something and then you watch it again and you're like, this movie's kind of weird. And I did that with my son. It's like all about ghosts, not baseball. And he was kind of weirded out by that. So dad failed on that one. But, but here's my point. Here's why I wanted to go through that exercise is there's some statements, there's some one-liners that are, that are powerful, that are memorable, that they're impactful in your life and maybe other people's lives around you. I have those in my life. Some of them you'll hear me say from stage, phrases like, you can't cheat time." If you haven't heard me say that, you're going to hear me say that. And the reason I say that is because my mentor in college, he used to say that. Another thing he used to say as well is, if you don't put, put, Tim, you should always be putting yourself in places where if you don't trust God, you're going to look stupid. And that's something I said last week to you guys, because it was a memorable statement in my life. And I'm passing that on to you. It's, it's powerful. And those kind of statements, they're not just powerful because of the declaration. They're typically powerful because of that declaration in the midst of difficulty. And not just the declaration in the midst of difficulty, but the declaration in the midst of difficulty that's backed by demonstration, backed by by action. People actually do what they say they're going to do. And and some of you, you have those lines coming to your mind right now. Things that were said to you in a difficult moment, but somebody backed it up and you've never forgotten those words. And why tell you that? It's because that's what we're looking at in the book of Ruth. What's interesting and what I love about the story of Ruth is there's no overt miracles in the book of Ruth. You don't see manna dropping down from the sky. You don't see a sea parting, but you do see over 50% of the book of Ruth, you see dialogue, you see conversation. And yet through ordinary conversation, just simple one-liners, you see extraordinary life change. In the people in this book, but in the people in the New Testament, in the line of Ruth is Jesus. In the whole world, we see this. And it stems from dialogue and words spoken and backed up with action. Changes the world. And so we're going to look at that together. And what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first portion of this story in chapter one, and then we're going to look at two significant statements that kind of wrap our time. They'll be your points in your bullets, and we're going to see this difficulty, this demonstration that follows these statements and how that can change our lives and really change the world. So that's where we're headed. Look at the book with me, Ruth chapter one. We'll start in verse one. It says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Maon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah. And the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. That's gonna be key, remember that detail. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, "'Go, return each of you to your mother's house. "'May the Lord deal kindly with you "'as you have dealt with the dead and me.'" "'The Lord grant you that you might find rest, "'each of you in the house of her husband.' "'And then she kissed them, "'and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. "'And they said to her, to Naomi, "'No, we will return with you to your people.' But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God, where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, I love this, she stopped trying. She said, no more. (laughs) Ruth was convinced this was what she was gonna do, and Naomi couldn't talk her out of it. But she tries, right? Here's our first point, our first phrase by Naomi to Ruth. It's this, it's turn back. Right, you heard it a couple times in that passage. Naomi tells Ruth, hey, turn back. You got to turn back. Now, we, we see why Naomi says that. There's some deep brokenness going on here. We're in broken people, big God. There's some deep brokenness going on in the midst of this saying. The first thing is we are in a broken time. Uh, verse one, if you look at that verse, it says, this is in the days when the judges ruled. Now the book of Judges is right before the book of Ruth and that's the time, that's the setting as we parachute into the story of Ruth. They are in the time of the Judges. Now, why is that significant? Well, what you need to know about the time of the Judges is this was before the time of, of kings and they had not really kings or political leaders, they had military leaders called Judges. And they had this because there was a time of chaos and rebellion and darkness going on in that land. We see it reflected throughout the book of Judges. If you go and read the book of Judges, you'll see this phrase repeated over and over. You'll actually see the book end with this phrase, which says this, that the people did what was right in their own eyes. And listen, you know, in that day, in our day, when people do what's right in their own eyes and not God's eyes, things go badly, amen? Amen. And that was the case in Ruth's day. And so there is a broken time. We just get that from the first verse. Then we get that there's a broken place. There is famine in the land of Judah. And what we see is Elimelech decides to move his family from Bethlehem and Judah to this land called Moab, where his two sons marry these Moabite women, Orpah and, and Ruth. Now, to give you some context, this move from Bethlehem to Moab, is, it's not just two different locations right? Uh, uh, it would be like, and this is not the way it is, but just to give you some context of what's going on here. I grew up as a kid in Texas and people in Texas are different, right? They call it a great nation. <laughs> it's a state. Okay. Some of y'all missed that. And the people call it, I mean, I grew up in Texas my whole life. My wife's family did too. And, and anytime people move away from Texas, which I eventually did, like, it's almost like uh, you're leaving God, right? In fact, they'll say things like, Texas is God's country, you know? We have America's team, we have God's team and the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. Okay, all right, all right. I lost you with that one. I'm just saying this is the reality, okay? Don't don't boo me. This is the reality of Texas, right? Anytime you move away to another, it doesn't matter if it's Arizona, California, or it doesn't matter where it is. If you leave Texas, you are leaving God's country and you're going to the devil's playground. Make no mistake about it. That's how people view it. It's not the way it is, okay? Telling y'all in Texas, it's not the way it is. But that's actually the way it was moving from Bethlehem and Judah to Moab. That's actually the way it was. You see, Bethlehem and Judah, that was God's promised land. That that was this land of promise that, that God promised his presence and his blessing would be in that land. And so as Elimelech, as you read that, like, so they picked up and they moved to Moab. You know why it says that twice? Because it was significant. As you read that, don't just think, oh, they just decided to to make a move for their family. No, no, no. They, They changed not just destinations, they went to a demonic territory. You see the story of the Moabite people, it starts with Lot in Genesis chapter 19, when Lot gives up his daughters to be gang raped when he rapes them himself. Out of that comes the Moabite people. If you read the Old Testament, what you see is over and over these Moabite people, they are oppressing other people, specifically the nation of Israel at at times. And they have this this lineage, this culture of sexual immorality, of oppression. It is woven throughout the fabric of their, their location, their people group. And that's where Elimelech, who's in God's promised land, in his presence, in his blessing, he decides to uproot his family and go to that place. And we don't have time today, but I would just say as a sidebar, maybe some of you are asking that question, well, man, does like, if we make decisions like that, does does pain really happen? We're gonna see pain happens, loss happens. And I would say, yes, that there are times when we make decisions pragmatically and logically and not spiritually, And as we make those decisions, there are pain and there are consequences. And that's what we see here. That's what we see in today's day and age, right? You see, there were practical, pragmatic, logical reasons why Limelech said, let's go from here to there. There was a famine in this land. And he said, we can go find food in this land. Is that logical? Is that pragmatic? Yeah. But it wasn't spiritually a wise decision. He was taking his his family out of a land of a blessing, of promise, of presence, and taking them into a place of demonic activity, sexual immorality. And so as you make decisions in your life, and some of you are facing these decisions, some of you have faced these decisions, and you think about a job you should take, and you look at it pragmatically, and you think, well, they're going to pay me this much money. I'm going to get to do these things. And so you snap, take the job. Or some of you think about it where you move. You think, hey, living in central Phoenix, it's hard to buy a home. So I'm gonna move out in the West Valley or I'm gonna move out in the East Valley. Over here, we're gonna get more square footage. And and pragmatically, logically, it makes sense, but maybe spiritually, it doesn't make sense. I don't know how many times I've seen people move away from their church community for the sake of more square footage. And then I hear back from them years down the road and they're lonely, lonely, They're missing accountability in their life. I don't know how many people I see take a job because it looks good on paper, but the work culture is toxic. And they're calling them to make work an idol to the neglect of their family. And it's disrupting and destroying families. But it made sense pragmatically and logically, but not spiritually, not biblically. It's a little takeaway that we can see from this this move from Bethlehem and Judah to Moab. But we come to this, broken place, this broken time, but also broken broken circumstances. Uh, We have a loss of family. Did you catch what happened? What's crazy about the Bible is we just read a few verses. This accounted for 10 years of loss. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Her two sons die in a span of 10 years. Can you imagine that gravesite? I, I, I know my my grandmother's gravesite, again, in Texas. I, I remember going to visit that gravesite when my grandmother died. See, my grandfather died probably 20 years before her. And I saw her gravesite and I saw his, his gravesite. And then several years later, I, I, I went back to see my, my aunt's gravesite in the same place. And I also saw my uncle's gravesite a few years later after that. And that whole span of that was probably 30, maybe even 40 years of seeing all these grave sites in one place. Naomi saw all these grave sites in one place in a matter of 10 years. And we don't get the details. Maybe it was a matter of a moment. We, they may have died altogether. We don't know that. But can you imagine that loss? It's devastating. It's so much that Naomi doesn't just see it as a loss of family. She sees it as a loss of favor, Look at verse 13 with me, a significant statement that Naomi makes. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And you start to understand, this is why Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth, turn back, turn back, I'm I'm damaged goods. God is not for me. He, He seems to be, he's not, but this is how she feels at the time. Some of you, this is how you feel at times. And you need to know, you can tell God that. You can be honest with God. He already knows how you're feeling. You can tell him that. He can handle that. Amen? Naomi tells God that. this is that We get raw, honest truth in the Bible. This is what it is. She feels like she's damaged good. She feels like, you wouldn't want to come with me. There's no blessing here. Go away. Turn back. Turn back. So you start to realize what's going on with Naomi, why she would say something like this. You see, in Naomi's current plight, culturally, she has nothing. But in that day, she's lost her husband, her provider. She's lost her kids, her legacy. She's lost her value, her significance in that day and age. She's lost everything culturally she's lost everything economically. What she's telling Ruth and Orpah is, hey, if you come with me, I can't provide for you. I have no way to make a living at this point in my life, and I'm probably too old to get remarried, and you're too young, or she says, hey, if you get married, like to my sons, like I don't have sons, and even if God gives me a husband tonight, and I have sons right now, which is not even possible, You're going to wait for 20 years to get married to them and and that's going to be your provision? No, turn back. And so Naomi has nothing culturally and economically. And it leads her to believe she has nothing spiritually. Have some of you been there? You look at your, your status and your significance and your value in our culture You look at it practically. You look at maybe some of your own brokenness and some of the decisions you made to do things logically and pragmatically, but not spiritually. And you start to look at the brokenness of your life and the brokenness in your own heart and your sin. And you think, I don't just have nothing economically, culturally. I have nothing spiritually. God, you must have looked away a long time ago. And what we're gonna see in the story of Ruth is God never looked away that Naomi still had weight, worth spiritually, even if she had nothing circumstantially or culturally or economically, amen? And that's true for you. This is why we're reading this story. Same God, that's true for you today too. We're gonna see that as we keep reading. Here's our second statement as we do. Here's the second statement now from Ruth to Naomi. Here's this powerful one-liner. She says, where you go, Naomi, I Will go. Now we just got through talking about Naomi's situation. Ruth is not much better, right? She is a a poor widow from enemy demonic territory. She has lost her husband, her her way of provision of value in that culture. And she's also attached at the hip to her mother in law. (laughs) Maybe the most brokenness in her situation. Right, not very attractive as she goes to a new land and looks for a husband. Hey, this is uh, I'm I'm Ruth. I'm from a demonic territory. Nice to meet you. And oh, what? Here's my mother-in-law. We go everywhere together. (laughs) Like, I mean, like, is she gonna have a bunch of men lining up for that? (laughs) God can do anything, right? And he does. But at this point, she's not thinking that's gonna happen. So you gotta gotta wrap your minds around this saying. When she says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people. Your God is gonna be with my God. She's not just saying like, hey, uh, Naomi, I've thought about it. And I know like, um, I could go back to Tucson, but I'm gonna move to Scottsdale with you. That's not what she's saying. She's not just saying like, hey, where you go, I will go. Like, I want to go on a fun journey with you, Naomi. Let's take a road trip. That's not what she's saying at all. What she is saying is a profound, unconditional phrase, statement of commitment, of sacrifice. What she is saying in this moment for all she knows based on the circumstances is she will never get remarried. She will never have worth, that Naomi has nothing to offer her. And she says, I'm gonna go with you anyway. And she's so extreme about it. She says, hey, if I depart at any point, God can kill me. I'm committed, she's making a a vow. This is profound. And it's not just the declaration in the midst of difficulty. That's powerful, amen? It's the declaration in the midst of difficulty that's backed by demonstration, right? We see a hint of it just in this moment. We see that Ruth clings to Naomi. Now that word is amazing. That demonstration is is powerful. That that same word we see in the book of Genesis, when it says a man shall leave his father and mother and cling or cleave to his, his wife. And yet Ruth is doing that same thing, same word, same demonstration. It's like a glue bond. Nothing will separate the two. She's doing that not just with her husband, listen to me, with her mother-in-law. Now, how many of y'all would do that for your mother-in-law? Unless she's in the room, you you would be honest and say no to that. And yet that is what Ruth does. Wow, this is a powerful statement. Some of you, you know this statement. Why do we know it? Because this is unprecedented difficulty. But it's a profound declaration. But it's an even more powerful demonstration. She clings to her. This is the power that we see of this dialogue. This is what changes everything. It changes everything. Naomi's life, right? This story ends, if you go on and read chapter four, it ends the best way a story could ever end. It ends with Naomi as a grandmother with her grandchild in her lap. I'm about to go home uh, to see my family in in Texas in a few short weeks as we do every summer. And you know what makes my parents so happy? It's not me. (laughs) It's who I bring with me. Amen, grandparents? It's me, I bring my three kids. Right, my kids are a little bit older now, 14, 11, 8, but it doesn't matter, man. They still want them to sit in their lap. I mean, you should just look like when the other day we communicated the specific details of when we were coming to my parents, and you should just see the amount of exclamation marks and heart emojis that are just raining in my text messages right now because they're going to get to see their grandkids. That's how this story ends. This improbable against all odds story. Naomi's life is forever changed. She ends up sitting with her grandchild on her lap. It changes everything. Was there bread falling from the sky? Was there this massive parting of a Red Sea? No, there was words spoken. There was a declaration in the midst of difficulty, but it was backed by demonstration. And let me tell you, that is powerful. It changes people's lives. It changes Naomi's life, but it doesn't just change her life. It changes Ruth's life. She does find a husband named Boaz, but bigger than that, she finds God. She has a relationship with God, an identity with God. She ends up being the great grandmother of King David in the line of Jesus. She has a book of the Bible named after her. Well, that's a big deal in and of itself, but it's a bigger deal when you know she's a Moabite woman, not an Israelite man. That that the majority of the book, in fact, all the books of the Old Testament are named after Israelites. She's the only non-Israelite to have a book of the Old Testament named after her. It changes Ruth's life. It, It changes the world. And that through Ruth and through her radical unwavering loyalty in the midst of difficulty, we get Jesus Christ who changes the world, who tells us, hey, where you go, I will go. And not just I'll risk my life, if I have to die, I'll die. But he says, I will die in your place for you to a people who have nothing to offer him. That's you and me. Like our brokenness in our sin is greater than Naomi. We have nothing to offer God. And yet he enters human history, he puts on flesh. He says, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna go where you go and I'm going to die. But I'm also gonna rise and I'm gonna give you relationship with me, right? See, what, what do we do with this sermon, Old Testament? How do we apply this, such a, such a story? Like, how, how do we apply this, Tim, in our lives? I'm gonna give you two things. Here, here's the first thing is we see the power of friendship. We see the power of friendship. We see the power of declaration and demonstration in the midst of difficulty and friendship. We see a friend like Christ. Right? Many people will talk about Ruth as a type of Christ. She's pointing us to, to our, our best friend, Jesus Christ. And we see just the power of an unconditional relationship over a transactional one. See, as I was thinking about this story and this friendship, it almost seems too, too simple to talk about dialogue and friendship in church. Like, well, oh, it's not that amazing to read, Tim. Until you look at all of our culture and all of our relationships and you realize they're all transactional, not unconditional. I think about it in my life sometimes as a pastor, in my dark moments, in my weak moments, I, I view my relationships sometimes, even with you all in here, honest moment today in church, as transactional. As a pastor for many years, sometimes that people love me when I'm preaching great sermons or, or preaching things they would like to hear. And the moment I say something they don't like to hear, they're gone. That's very transactional my relationships at times. And I've also seen though, the power of unconditional relationships. I have a few of those in this room as well. That when I wasn't a great preacher and they stayed, and I don't know why they stayed, it was pretty bad. And we didn't have a a great, mission as a church. We didn't have a great facility. We were meeting at a school in downtown Phoenix, and we actually got evicted out of that school, and there was a few people who said, hey, we're not transactional friends. We're unconditional friends. We are going to go with you, and where you go, I'm going to go, and we're in this together. We're locking arms. Let me tell you, those are foxhole friends, amen? There's power in that. It changed my life. It's changing your life. And you don't even know who those people are. But because they stuck with me, they were unconditional, not transactional. I'm preaching to you. I'm still here today. We're sharing the gospel, about to do a VBS, see some people come to know Jesus because I had some friends. It's not me, it's my friends. That's the power of unconditional friendship, statements, declarations and difficulty backed by demonstration. And some of you, you have friends like that. If you don't, you need to find some friends like that because let me just tell you, it doesn't matter how well I preach and how great the music is and how great our classes are. If, if you don't find another friend in the faith to lock arms with, it's called the body of Christ, the family of God. If you don't find that, you'll probably leave, but, but less than that, like bigger than that, your life won't change. You need these kinds of friends. You need to be this kind of friend. Maybe today on your way home, you just start with your spouse, maybe start with your kids, but maybe start across the aisle with somebody you don't know that well and just start that conversation. Maybe start with somebody who's going through a sickness or strife or sin and just simply tell them, it doesn't have to be that profound. Just simply tell them, hey, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I just wanna let you know I'm with you. And I'm here if you need me. I'm not going anywhere. That's amazing, isn't it? Have you experienced that? The lesson from Ruth is be a friend like that. Look for friends like that. My, my call to you in our church, we can worry about a lot of things that happen on Sundays, but if you don't find a friend community to walk with, we've missed the boat as a church community, amen? That's what it's about. That's where the power is for life change. Here's the second thing, is the freedom of identity. The freedom of identity. But what we see with Ruth is her circumstances, Naomi too, are against all odds. She doesn't have a husband. She's looking at a future Ruth is, without a husband, without value, without significance. She's looking at her circumstances and they are bleak and yet her identity is secure in God the freedom in that. I don't know how many people I talk to and they're looking for a circumstance to fulfill them. They're looking for that job. They're looking for that pay raise. They're looking for that spouse or a different spouse. They're looking for their kids to be something. They're looking for that home with that square footage. They're looking to make a name for themselves. And it's all about their circumstances. And let me just tell you, there's no peace there. There's no purpose there. There is a roller coaster there of frustration, of defeat, even when you're high, even when you're on the mountaintop, there's a valley coming and you just ebb and flow. And listen, the beauty of what it means to follow Jesus is your identity doesn't come from your circumstances, your identity comes from Christ. And that's a freeing thing. I I say it this way, that's having the world in checkmate. That people can take your food away, they can take your house away, they can take other things away, And yet you still will win in the end because you're in Jesus Christ. We want that kind of freedom, amen? We wanna live that kind of life. That's what allows Ruth to change the people around her, to change her life, to change the world is because she was willing to walk out in that freedom. Many of us were held back by our circumstances. We need to walk in our freedom in Christ and see what he would do with that. Today, we're gonna end with baptism. We're gonna end not just with be more like Ruth. You need to hear that today. That's not the message. That's not the application. Can we take some lessons? Did I just give you some? Yes, but ultimately, here's the message. It's not be more like Ruth or be a friend like Ruth or be free like Ruth. It's look to the one, trust in the one that Ruth points us to. It's realize that Jesus Christ, he, he came to you. Against all odds, you didn't deserve it. You had nothing to offer him. And yet he stepped out and said, I'm going to be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the love of Jesus Christ. That gives us a freedom of identity. That gives us the power of friendship to pass on to others horizontally. That changes our lives, but it also changes the world. Amen? And that's available to us in Jesus Christ. If we receive Jesus Christ, if we walk in Jesus Christ, that's the kind of story we have and that will change us and that will change others and that will change our world. And so I'm gonna invite you right now to just bow your head and close your eyes and let's do some business with God. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come forward, our our baptizees to go ahead and come forward. And I just wanna talk briefly, if you're a Christian in this room, if you would just think for a moment about your life right now? Are you walking in this kind of friendship? Are you walking in this kind of identity? Are you experiencing this kind of power? Are you experiencing this kind of freedom that we read about in the story of Ruth? And if you are not, why? Let me just take a moment and pray. Ask God, what is in the way right now? Maybe it's a sin Maybe it's a conversation that didn't go well. Maybe it's a friend that left you that that's how you see God now. Maybe it's your father, you think God is like that because he's a father and and no, he's your perfect heavenly father. I, I don't know why it is for you, but I just take a moment. What is inhibiting you from experiencing the power and freedom that we have in Christ? And as you think about what that is, I just want to lead you in a prayer this morning. I just want to have you pray simply, God, I give that, whatever that is, to you. I give you that conversation. I give you that sense of abandonment of a friend who I thought was a friend. I give you that sin and brokenness that's in my own heart. It's holding me back from experiencing the power and the freedom that I should have in Christ. Would you just ask God that? He's faithful, he's good, he's gonna answer that prayer. And then if you're in here and you're not a Christian, you need to know in the most loving way possible, you have no hope for power, for freedom in your life because you don't have Jesus in your life. So I would just ask you to pray another prayer. If you're you're not a Christian in this room, maybe you said, I've come to some religious services. I've gone through the motions. I've tried to be like Ruth or be like Noah or be like Moses or, or be like somebody else in the Bible. And I can't, I just wanna lead you in a prayer. If you would simply pray this, Jesus, I give you my sin. I give you my life. I need you. I believe in you. Jesus, I believe that you lived and died and resurrected for me to forgive me of my sins, to give me a new life marked by freedom, marked by power, marked by an identity that's secure for eternity. Jesus, pray that prayer right now. I believe God will meet you right now. He will change your life, He will save you, He will transform you just by those simple words. And if you do pray that prayer, I'd invite you to come. We're going to sing a song. You can come down and pray with our prayer team. You can get baptized today and declare that you have freedom and power in Jesus Christ. At any point while we're singing, we invite you to come. If you are a Christian, but you just say, I need some help in this, we'd invite you to come and just receive prayer during this song. And the rest of us that we would sing out loud, declaring what a beautiful name Jesus Christ really is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this time. God, I thank you for all the ways people are responding all across the room. God, I pray that we would respond, that you have called us here, not by accident, but by appointment to give ourselves over to you. Maybe for some of us to do that just again, but maybe for some of us to do that for the very first time, that we are in bondage, we are in sin, we are enslaved to circumstances and brokenness, and you wanna set us free from that in Jesus' name. And I pray that all of us would leave this place experiencing that, experiencing that afresh if we know you, experiencing that for the first time if we don't. Move us, God, we pray that. Move us by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus as we, as we pray, as we get baptized, as we sing. We pray that in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.